Hello and welcome to Business Without the podcast brought to you by Ori Clark. My name is Dominic Frisby and I am host for today's programme, which is a budget special. Last week saw what was described as the most important budget for a generation. But every time we get a budget, it always seems to be the most important budget for a generation. As it turned out, a lot of quite frightening tax changes were mooted, but in the end, we didn't get that many of them. It was more sort of tinkering around the edges. But nevertheless, we have many of the senior members of Ori Clark with us to discuss some of the business implications uh, of the budget. We have Ian Phipps, Chartered Tax Accountant, Andy Ori, of course, Chartered Tax Accountant, Simon Walsh, Solicitor, Richard Ori, Chartered Tax Accountant, and Jeremy Coker, who is a Chartered Tax Accountant. There are a lot of Chartered Tax Accountants at Ori Clark, but given that it is an accountancy firm, among other things, I suppose that makes sense. And we're going to start with the son of the founder of Ori Clark. He's the senior member of the team. He's been with the company um, for many, many years, ever since, I think, 1596, something like that. And he is, of course, Richard Ori. Why don't we start with a quick sort of overview of what the general sort of company opinion uh, of the budget is? Yes, I think the budget is actually just a curtain raiser. I think he had to do something, but he just doesn't know his numbers because nobody knows what 2021 is going to bring and whether the deficit will get worse or whether the interest rates internationally will rise. He did mention in his speech that uh, I think 1% rise would give around 25 billion extra problem for him. So there could be some trouble downstream and he's got to get ready for it. So I think he's been quite clever by opening the door to try and get us all going, but at the same time putting caveats in about how he's going to raise the money, which to me is to just try and steady the financial markets and persuade them to go on lending us lots of money um, to get get ourselves out of trouble. Um, So I think there's a a psychological preparation for more to come. Uh, I don't believe freezing any of the tax limits, which is what he's done, is really stops him from increasing taxes. He's merely said you won't get any more relief. He hasn't said you won't get a higher rate. So I think it's an intriguing budget, and I think he's really restrained by the fact that he doesn't know the answer. He didn't know it last year, which is why he didn't do much. All he's doing is pumping money to solve the problem and kicking the ball down the road. So I think we're going to face some uh, changes that will may well come about of increased taxation on whether it be capital gains, inheritance tax or anything else, um, because we don't know what the end of COVID will be as yet. But what we do know, Richard, is that I, I, I tend to agree with that overview, by the way, but we don't yet know what is in store. And so we can only act on what we do know. And in terms of what he's given us, what the changes he's made, I I, I don't see any huge damage to business and I don't see any huge new opportunity for business. I see more of a sort of continuation apart from this, you know, corporation tax rise. And by the way, (laughs) I'm sure you accountants will like this, but even though it's a a percentage point rise of six percentage points, it is in fact a 35, 36% rise in corporation tax. Yeah, it's interesting, though, because a lot of the publicity has been talking about taxes as bad as the 1960s. 
And I was quietly looking up the rates and they were in the 40% for corporation tax. Uh, personal income taxes, base rate was 41.5%, I think it was. I think at one point it it went over ninety percent. My my dad was a my dad was a taxer. He fled to Cannes to to flee these punitive tax rates in nineteen sixty eight. Well, there was a year which I could remember. It hit one hundred and three percent because the, the highest rate was ninety eight percent, and they put a five percent surcharge on. Goodness me! No wonder the Beatles wrote that song. <laughs> but well, yes, yeah, so it's better than it was in the sixties, despite what the headlines said. Agreed. Um, no, I don't, I don't think he's done anything particularly wrong uh, in what he's doing. Uh, we've got to pay it back, and I think it's a soft way of doing it. Um, but, you know, the public are not going to be very happy if he said, let's cure it all very quickly and whack us all with enormous extra tax burdens. But I think it'll creep. And it's interesting to me that they've invested a lot more money in trying to get rid of avoidance, which used to be perfectly legal, and now the government seem to have decided that it's legal, illegal, sorry, and they're going to spend many millions extra with the Inland Revenue hiring lots and lots of investigators. So, you know, the power of the state increases all the time. I've got a joke about that from my Edinburgh show. What is the difference between tax evasion and tax avoidance? Tax avoidance is what comedians criticise Amazon and Starbucks for, and tax evasion is what they do with the money they get paid at cash gigs. <laughs> I don't think it's a joke. I think it's a very good example. <laughs> <laughs> right, Ian, let's uh, turn the conversation to you. This is Ian Phipps, one of the legion of chartered tax accountants. Um, tell us your overview of the budget and, and its implications. Yeah, I mean, just following on from what Richard said, um, I think, I mean, it's quite interesting just that, you know, we've got a sort of um, Tory government that's actually going for a taxing, uh, a spend and tax rather than a tax and spend um, agenda, which is very different from what they've done historically. I think it's absolutely the right thing to do. Um, I think the country needs a sort of shot in the arm. Everyone's a bit down, depressed, um, and it needed that boost without a doubt. I think just sort of following on from what Richard was alluding to, I think on the 23rd of March, um, there's what's I think what's com- being commonly known as Tax Consultation Day, which is sort of Rishi's launching various tax consultations, which I think is going to give more of a roadmap, you know, as a sort of softer thing as to what may be downstream um, in terms of further tax rises, which may have more say on capital taxes, which everyone thought was going to be a you know the, the thing to be hit that wasn't this time around. Um, so I think we watch that with interest, and I think there's a lot. More and more commentary suggesting that we may we may get a more taxing budget in the um, in the autumn. So um, of autumn of twenty one. Um, so, but we'll see um, what we see. But I think overview is absolutely did the right thing. It's definitely driven investment. You know, already I've had clients on the phone talking about right. You know, we're going to advance our capital spend. Let's let's take advantage of this. Um, so I think it will it will have its that its effect. The super deduction for investment. Um, and that shot in the arm will definitely add some impetus to the economic recovery without doubt. So I think that it's, you know, as, as Richard said, he's kicked the can down the road um, and we'll see where we end up. But I think certainly it's positive for business, certainly for the next 24 months. Um, let's just go into a little bit of detail here. Can you explain what the super deduction is? Well, the super it's, it's actually an enhanced capital allowances claim. So if you buy... You know, some plant machinery, anything that sort of qualifies for capital allowances. Um, historically, most most things that qualify for capital allowances, so computer equipment, 
um, plant machinery, new, you know, a lot a van, whatever it may be that sort of qualifies for plant machinery allowances. So anything that sort of improves the productivity of your business, basically. In theory, yeah. In theory, yeah. Um, for every hundred pounds you spend, you get one hundred and thirty percent tax deduction. Um, so it's a very positive encouragement to invest. I think the and it's for. Um, expenditure made between 1st of April 21 and 31st of March 23. Um, there are a couple of sort of exclusions that we need to be mindful of. One is that it doesn't count if you're buying secondhand goods. There's always exclusions. That's what we love about yeah. governments when you read the small print. That's why um, the tax code's so big. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, you know, um, so no secondhand goods. Um, I've actually got a property developer who was thinking about buying a crane. He was getting very excited because he thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to get good deduction. But he's now decided his secondhand crane's not going to qualify. So he's a bit less excited. Um, the other thing to bear in mind is that... Laptops? Can I buy a new laptop? Yeah, laptops, definitely good. Yeah, laptops would be good. How annoying. I bought a mobile phone last month. I should have bought yeah, it this month. Yeah. Just take it back, Dominic. Take it back and buy a new one. It only applies to corporation tax. Sure, but uh, all my I, I'm a limited company, so uh, I'm wearing it with my corporation hat on, with my CEO hat on. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So I think the other thing to just, to just watch is that so you have to track any assets that you buy under this new regime. You're going to have to track their values because if you subsequently dispose of them and you sell them for a, you know... In future, for some money, there is about balancing charge on those, which gets quite a complicated calculation. But you have to bear in mind that if you subsequently sell this asset, you've had super tax deduction. So even if you, you know, even if you sell it for you know one pound, you'll you've got a thirty percent profit effectively from a tax point of view in the future. So um, just something to bear in mind. Keep you need to keep track of these assets, and they, it will come back in, into charge at some point in the future. So. so let me just use um, layman's language. Let's say the profits of my company are £100 and I go off and I buy a, 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 a laptop for £100. Yep. I can effectively write off £130 against my profits. Correct. So correct. Is that not open to a lot of abuse? Um, I, don't, I don't think it's necessarily open to abuse because it's, it's going to be a question of fact if you've bought... You've bought some equipment. Anything's open to abuse if people have been fraudulent. Um, but I think the, you know the reality is, you know, you are buying something physical. You're buying some equipment that is of use in the business. I mean, most of the big gains are going to be from large companies that are going to be investing in additional plant machinery. I mean, car, fa- you know, electric cars are coming. I'm guessing a lot of investment in those in that infrastructure. I think there's a big point here that if you actually look at it, if he hadn't done it. Everybody would have put up and put off their investment until the twenty-five percent rate. I think it's actually a bit of a catch, you know, a game. It's really saying we'll give you twenty-five percent now. When you actually work the maths out, it's not far off. So we'll give you to relief at twenty-five percent now. Otherwise, you're not going to hurry your projects forward. This will encourage you to bring your projects forwards, not defer them. He doesn't sell it like that, but I'm sure there was a concern that if you're going to. Put, set out a rate of 25% in two years' time, then somebody will sit around and say, well, why don't we get the plant then? If we don't need it this year, we'll we'll buy it then. Whereas this is saying you can buy it now and get your relief early. I have to say, just from my own point of view, hearing you both talk there, like, you know, I've just had at the back of my mind, I do need to lap- buy a laptop at some point. And um, w- what that little sleight of hand has done is it's, brought forward my consumption of the laptop and at the same time it's delayed the punitive taxes that are coming later on. So it's quite a good way of bringing one thing forward and delaying the payback. 
absolutely. Yeah, the the government's numbers show that it will be a big giveaway in cash for them initially, and then it will be a big take because people will have invested, uh, and therefore they're expecting an acceleration of investment. They will uh, then be in a position later on that there won't be as much relief given out for plant, and they will suddenly get a bigger corporation tax take than they might otherwise have been the case. It's hidden in the small print, but it's there. Good stuff. Andy, you were about to say something there. No, no, I'm just adding to that point because he took a bit of, you know, he, he said that thing about, oh, businesses need certainty. So I'm going to tell you now the tax rate, you know, is coming, as it were. So I think you're absolutely right, Pop. It, it, the businesses do like that certainty. So they, you know, he wanted to be clear with people that it was coming in the future, wasn't it? And then and then it's just, it's just trying to encourage people to spend now when, when clearly, um, clearly it's needed. Yeah, it's doing what Dominic said, tipping him into an early purchase, which will kickstart the economy. Right, let's bring another voice into this. Let's get a, a legal perspective on things. And uh, so I'll talk now to Simon Walsh, solicitor Simon Walsh. Simon, what's your opinion of the budget? Any any major implications? I mean, I, I think there are major implications all, all around, but, uh, you know, particularly Ian mentioned it. Um, you know, for, from a corporate and commercial legal perspective, I think, you know, there, 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 there is and there will be um, activity. You know, um, businesses that have got cash are on the hunt for weaker businesses um, that might uh, be prime for sale or investment. So, uh, you know, we're, we're expecting some uh, residual activity well and truly. Uh, so, so I think from a legal point of view, but I think what, what's interesting, you know, as you know, Dominic, one of the things that we focus on as a firm is helping businesses who are established in their territory outside of the UK move into the UK. And so I think legally, one of the interesting or one of the interesting aspects from the budget were the overtures that Rishi made about making changes to the immigration system to make it easier for businesses to bring in international talent. Uh, clearly, sort of labour supply is a big issue post-Brexit. Uh, uh, you know, it's not, not nearly as easy now for, for Europeans to move into the country as it used to be. And, in fact, talented Europeans are now sort of all sat in the same pot as equally talented Indians or Australians or South Americans, whatever it might be. So I think from a legal point of view, his comments about streamlining and making it easier for businesses to bring talent in were, were certainly uh, very, very welcome statements. Um, as with anything, um, the devil's in the detail, and it's important to understand that sort of the changes that he's alluded to aren't going to happen overnight. They'll probably not happen until sometime next year. But, you know, as we all know, we've, we've been in lockdown for, for, for nigh on 12 months, which, you know, looking back, seems to have gone pretty quickly. So uh, we, we fully expect that the next 12 months will go pretty quickly as well. So we're hoping to see some changes sort of a, particularly for businesses that are uh, scale-up tech businesses. You know, there's a, there's a lot of focus now on sort of 
immigration around sectors. So, you know, one of the things that he alluded to um, was sort of what, what is calling an elite points-based system. So, for example, if you're a fintech company and you're sort of you, you, you're at scale-up stage, i.e. you might have got your Series A funding or still be reliant on, on angel investment, uh, he, he is going to make it easier for those sorts of businesses to bring in the talent it need or they need to continue to grow their business. And it's quite interesting too, Dominic, because uh, Ori Clark, many, many, many fingers in many pots, but we have a recruitment arm as well. And we were talking this morning with Caroline Gregory, uh, Richard's one of Richard's daughters, uh, and uh, their recruitment team are seeing a huge increase in activities. So, uh, and you know, whether, whether this is just off the wake of you know, kind of a, a light at the end of the tunnel from COVID, you know, I, I guess a budget this sort of you know, sort of is very sort of middle of the road. It's neither left nor right, but whatever, there, there, there seems to be a reasonable amount of activity coming off the back of it. Okay, so, I mean, one of the things we've discovered in over the course of the past year is that the potential internet reach is far greater in the UK than it is almost anywhere in the developed world. And therefore the potential for tech companies, digital companies to scale up is perhaps greater than it is in, say, Southern Europe or wherever else in the world you're looking at. I think internet reach is even greater here than it is in the USA. And at the same time, specialist, uh, I think I'm going to phrase this correctly, but um, job advertising for specialist professions is higher than it's been for some considerable time. And so it would seem that somebody in the Treasury has got wind of this and is opening the door for more sort of high-level, uh, specific skilled immigration down the road, although we haven't... He's just giving us the signal that it's coming rather than actually um, saying it's here now. We haven't seen the I's, the T's crossed and the I's dotted yet. Absolutely correct. So, you know, I, I wholeheartedly agree. But I, but I think as well, um, you know, sort of... Um, scale-up visas or sort of fast-track visas for, for tech aside, I think sort of economically this this country needs it needs a you know a ready supply of labour um, across all sectors. Whether you're in the agricultural space, whether you're in healthcare, or whether you're in high tech, and certainly whilst a lot of what he said in the budget was very tech focused, um, some of the changes that he's talking about making to other visa types should make it easier for um, a broader range of businesses to bring in the talent, um, both skilled yeah. and, you know, sort of lower skilled workers that we need to sort of sort of ride the economic wave, which we all uh, are expecting will happen. Yeah, I read that London alone saw 700,000 people leave. Now, some of them will have stayed in the UK and just gone to the country, but many of them will, will have gone abroad. And I guess Rishi feels that we need to get some of that labour back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we all know if you look at the sort of the number of Southern Europeans who left the UK before Brexit, you know, they, they're all faced with the prospect of unemployment in, you know, in, in, in Southern Europe or finding a way to come back to the UK. Um, and I think, you know, that, that, that is, will be addressed through some of the reforms that he's talking about.
There's one negative impact possibly uh, based on, because the tax um, rises haven't happened, obviously lots of people were were fearful that they would happen, but we sort of know they're going to happen. People have got lots of time to plan to leave. I was on, you know, the phone this morning with someone who's got quite a lot of money and they're going to move to Ibiza and they've got time to sort it out and slowly get out of the country and avoid avoid the, they i mean they're all concerned about the concept of this wealth tax so i think that's an interesting thing but business do you think they knew that because i've got a friend andy who's uh, in the cayman islands and he's saying both from europe and north america he's seeing unprecedented you know people are buying stuff off plan without looking at it because they just want to leave wh- whichever jurisdiction they're in do, i mean do you think do you think rishi knows he's left the door open to leave or do you think that's just a mistake well, that's an interesting point. I think to give certainty in business, he just couldn't put the taxes up now, could he? And actually, I actually asked this guy this morning. I said, "Oh, is this?" He said, "Well, the taxes sort of, you know, the, the next, the next, the, 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 the straw that broke the camel's back." But really, it's the whole remote working thing. My wife now can work remotely, so it's a sort of culmination of factors, isn't it? First, it was Brexit, then it was remote working, and now it's like, oh, there's this sort of fear that taxes are going to go up in the UK, and we're fairly highly taxed. So. I think it's, um, yeah, he, he, he was very silent on that aspect, really, wasn't he? He was hoping not to give too much of an indication. But, um, yeah, I mean, when you get into it, I mean, immediately you then ask the question that Simon asked. I was like, what well, have you got a visa? And he was like, oh, yeah, we haven't sorted that out yet. And it's like, well, OK, you know, it's a great idea, but, you know, you've got to get a visa. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's a bit more complicated than you think, perhaps. Anyone's taking a bit of a punt moving to any developed economy because there's not a single economy globally that's not been impacted by the pandemic. So anyone who thinks they can move to another developed jurisdiction and not suffer some tax rises sometime in the next five or ten years is is, is slightly short-sighted, I think. I mean, I was thinking exactly that. It's a lot of the press has been very UK-centric, saying, oh, it's terrible, we've got taxes, tax burdens going up. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. You know, this is not unique we are not unique in any way shape or form in fact we may be in better shape you know because of the way you know the speed of the vaccine rollout here but you know it's just yeah it just seems bizarre that nobody sort of seems to be commenting on well this is going to happen everywhere else it's just rishi's got a bit ahead of the game and he's i think he's been quite cute um as rich said you know and given this shot in the arm but with the uh, with the view that sort of further downstream it's going to come back but you know everyone by the time we get there you know we're still gonna have one of the lowest tax rates among the g7 you know it, it, at least well, no, they've got to keep the tax rate on normal people, let's put it that way, working people, clever or otherwise, at a reasonably low level internationally. You know, it, they can't go back to the 60s because all the clever people leave. You get the brain drain. And I was grew up in that region where my friends were all qualifying as doctors and things and going straight off to Canada because the tax rates were just so penal. And I don't think we could rebuild an economy on that kind of what I would call crazy tax, you know, when you are paying 83, 83, 90, I think up to 50. I mean, Thatcher cut it to 40 and bluntly the dishonesty went down by just unbelievable amount because people at 83 or 98 or something, they regarded as confiscation. Whatever their political opinion, I've had all sorts of people, they just, whatever, they just could not stand that rate of tax. It was confiscation. As a somebody said to me, I'm a convinced socialist, but it was confiscation, so I took it abroad. I will, I will say this about Rishi, and I know this because um, 
when I, I wrote my book on tax a couple of years ago, and when I was promoting it, one of the think tanks that was very on side with it was the Institute of Economic Affairs, the IEA, which is very much, you know, Thatcherite in its economic outlook, low taxes, individual responsibility, small state, all that kind of thing. And they bought a copy of the book and gave it out to various MPs. And they consider Rishi Sunak to be one of their own. They consider him to be a guy who is of the mind that low taxes bring greater economic growth. And he's, you know, quite Thatcherite. Now, obviously, politicians might profess to one ideology and that changes once they get into power. But at least at some stage along the route, Rishi Sunak was a low tax guy. (laughs) That might eventually change, but he he was that at, at one point. Right. Let's move the conversation in. And, and one person whose wisdom we haven't um, digged into yet is, is Jeremy Coker. Jeremy, what is your role within Ori Clark? What, what aspect of the budget um, would you like to talk about? Generally, most of what I do is tax and tax related. And um, to the extent that we have entrepreneurial businesses, I think every single tax impact in the budget is something that one person or the other has asked me about. I know we, we spoke about the 130% deduction. I just want to say this as in like, whatever, it's a great thing, but it's going to benefit the large companies a lot better. And I know you gave an example of 100, think of 10 million. Yeah, as in the revenues numbers say that a company spends 10 million in qualifying assets. It's going to save under the current system, roughly 500,000 pounds tax. Um, under the normal capital allowances system, in the super, with the super deduction, it's going to save 2.47 million. That's a big number. So, with the large companies, that super deduction is an absolutely fabulous thing. For the smaller companies, not so much. The large companies have got deeper pools of capital that they can spend and benefit from the tax reductions. That's correct. Yes, and of course, therefore, add the economic driver that we need. Yeah. So, whilst everybody is thinking about it, and like you know, no insult to your phone that you want to buy for you or like whatever. As in, it's the bigger guys that are going to really, really benefit from that super deduction. That's a lot more than the smaller guys because we already have the annual investment allowance, which allows us up to 1 million that we can actually claim as capital expenditure any which way, as in every, every year. You know, So that super deduction, yes, there's a bit of 30%, but it's not really significant for us. And with the annual investment allowance, which I mentioned, which is where we have right now, there is a one million limit which stops at the end of December. Then it goes down to £200,000. Now, when this super deduction of 130% stops, that means everybody is down to £200,000, which they can like, you know, now spend as capital investment. So it's a rather abrupt cliff edge that everybody should like, you know, watch out for. So they are going to have to spend those sums now if they want to take advantage of that super deduction or else there's a cliff edge. It's like on day two, they'll only be able to spend £200,000 and get 100% of a deduction. You're saying that the 130% deduction that companies get will be limited to expenditure up to 200000 when? In two years? No, or? no. The 130% deduction is unlimited. Yeah. So... The annual investment allowance is limited at £1 million. So whilst we're all dancing around with our 130% deduction from April for the next two years, the annual investment allowance quietly goes down to £200,000 at the end of December. So when the super deduction stops, unless they've done something about the annual investment allowance, everybody is back into annual investment allowance territory, which is now £200,000. Massive cliff edge in March 23 is what we're saying. Yeah. 
So, so massive, massive cliff edge over there. And for unincorporated businesses, it's a cliff edge this next December, which is rather stupid. I mean, it's one thing I would raise is that there is always this inequality between corporate and non-corporate uh, partnerships and the like and sole traders in that he's allowing the corporations to claim back loss relief for three years. That's actually a really good thing for people at the moment who are struggling because if they paid taxes two years ago, they've got a chance of getting it back. And and I think it's a it's almost like a, a sea bills or better. It's like this one's for free. You can claim back from the government. How much it's going to cost them would be interesting because I'm starting to look at clients and say, okay, you've made a loss in 2020, not surprisingly, claim it back for three years. And it's an immediate cash boost next July when they pass the law. Okay, who is going to explain to us what the three-year loss carryback is? The bottom line really is for two years, each company or or self-employed organisation or, or individual rather can get two million worth of losses that they are able to carry back three years. So for both corporates and individuals to the extent that you have a trade and you're a trading like whatever as in you can actually get two million worth of losses that you can carry back and essentially as in if you think about it as in very very simply as in for the first year if you are able to carry the two million back three years back you'll you can get 90 percent of your tax back if you actually had two million worth of profits in that year Okay, so if my company made a million pounds last year and a million pounds the year before, and this year it lost a million pounds, I would be able to claw back some of the tax that I paid in previous years this year. Is that right? That's correct. Would HMRC actually pay me a a refund or would I just be able to write it off against future taxes? They pay you. It, it, it actually will result in like a, a monetary payment coming to you. And, and this is one where I think for an individual, somebody who is self-employed and has had large profits in the past and has sadly suffered losses now, as in I'm carrying a loss back where they've paid taxes at 45% could be a really, really good thing you know, for them. And that's for individuals and for limited companies? Yes, yes. So, so there's a two million for two years both for individuals and for limited companies. I've got to say, generous though that is, I can see a lot of people, I can see a lot of scope for fraud there as well. Well, you can't manufacture losses out of thin air. And to be honest, as in we've seen so many things, if it's too good to be true, it is too good to be true. And so where you say you can see a lot of scope, you have to have a real loss. You can't really just manufacturer loss and there are a number of people that have come into the markets over the years and tried to like manufacture losses and i say manufacture not as a manufacturing enterprise it's just schemes just don't work Mm -hmm. okay let's move the conversation on to everyone's favorite subject an invention of the french vat yeah i think i think in the present company it would be uh, my topic um i mean uh, you know effectively they 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 will continue a five percent rate for the hospitality industry and then there's there's many people currently running around trying to work out whether their various uh, activity will qualify for this um 5% rate so um i mean and obviously the other announcement was the sort of you know steadily rising i mean you know jeremy within your within your remit it would be good to know what the chat is within the your, your att uh, presidential world is it viewed as a very positive thing they actually mentioned that this could be 
one of the Brexit dividends that people never thought about because we don't have to go to anybody to introduce a new rate of VAT because VAT is an European tax. And out of the, as in literally, he's just created a 12.5% rate out of nothing. It's the first VAT rate change post Brexit. Could this be the start of many more things? I know we don't like many rates, but once you've opened the basket, hey, who knows? Because we've been we've been um, rather attached, you know, the EU didn't allow us to change our rates. And indeed, we had historical things like 0% rate on books, uh, and they had uh, been rather tricky and not allowed us to um, get 0% on e-publications. Actually, then someone managed to win a court case to say that, uh, you know, the judge effectively said, well, fundamentally, someone receiving an FT in paper form or re- receiving the FT digitally, there is no difference. This law said receiving a newspaper, this is a newspaper. It is not a, doesn't have to be a physical item. So actually, the 0% rate had come through even um, pre-Brexit. But as, as Jeremy's alluding to, the, the you know, an upside of not being sort of um, uh, straight-jacketed into the EU system is we can look in a much more straightforward um, strategic manner at different services and, and adjust the VAT rates to drive consumption, as it were, you know, and obviously there's a low rates for disabled or charitable or, you know, a, a smoking cessation, you know, various things that are considered good for you and there's zero rates on what is con- considered essentials. And we've just been rather stuck with what we had for a, a long, long time, which, you know, I- in the example of e-books was ra- rather silly. You know, if you want to promote people reading, you know, that you can't, for- you know, it shouldn't be forcing them to get a physical version in, in 2021. So, yeah, as Jeremy's saying, it, now could the floodgates be open uh, to be more dynamic with our VAT rates? Um, let's talk about now SDLT, I think I'm going to say, get this right, stamp duty loan tax? Stamp duty land tax. Stamp duty land tax, thank you. Zero rates extended till the end of June. Let's let's discuss that. So, yeah, so obviously there was a lot of press around this. And I think, you know, the word on the street was that he was going to extend it, but nobody was ever sure. So certainly a lot of people who were in the middle of house purchases were worrying that their you know their houses weren't going to complete before the 31st of march and they were going to have, and it makes a massive difference to some people i mean it, you know it can be sort of 15000 pounds you know difference in stamp duty as to whether it completes on the 31st of march or 1st of april as was you know and obviously that's a lot of stress for a lot of people a lot of first time buyers particularly so um, and I think the housing industry has sort of lobbied probably quite hard and said, look, this is just bananas because it's stopping people buying, which it did. I, I act for a few house builders and we've, you know, what happened was as soon as the, you know, as soon as it became, think people were thinking, oh, I'm not going to be able to complete within this window now. People stopped, stopped reserving properties and buying. And actually, I think, you know, one of my, you know, since the announcement, you know, they've sold four out of the six flats they had in one development, you know, since budget day. Because suddenly people think, actually, we are now going to be in a position where you know we're going to get it within the threshold. So, so what's actually happened is he's extended this sort of nil rate band of five hundred thousand. So there's no stamp duty at all on the first five hundred thousand of a purchase of a residential property up to the thirtieth of June. There are a few exceptions. I think it's always worth flagging that non-resident people now there's a two percent surcharge from first of April for anyone who's non-resident buying a. UK residential property, and you may also have this wonderfully hidden this additional right three percent stamp duty rate if it's a second property. So if you if you already own a property anywhere in the world um, and it's a second residential property, then there's additional rate. But notwithstanding that, so for but mostly for first time buyers, nothing to pay for the first half a million. He's also then sort of tapering that down so up to this up to the thirtieth September twenty one. Um, that 
nil rate band's gone to two fifty thousand, so half of what it half of what it is currently, but certainly twice what it was before, and then it goes down after the thirty September back to the hundred and twenty five thousand. So there is a, an absolute incentive to sort of complete quickly to do things before thirtieth of June, certainly, but if not by thirtieth September. I mean, my only comment is, and it's interesting, a lot of commentary, and obviously a lot of the housing people love it, house builders love it, um, and people who are buying a house love it. But I think what it has done is actually pushed up prices. You know, as ever, it's like everything. What we what they're not fixing and what nothing seems to be fixing is the supply side um, issue of there's just not enough houses for people to buy. So prices are going up and house prices have increased quite significantly, as you'll have seen from the, you know, the surveys, Halifax surveys and everything else. In the last few months, you know, counter sort of intuitively to what's going on in the pandemic, but a lot of it is driven by this, this sort of relief and the fact that there is just demand to buy now. Um, so what it, all it's actually done is push prices up, um, made it slightly less affordable for people. So I'm buy not more sure. than you would have paid in stamp duty. Exactly, you know, almost so it can be, can be. So I think you know, it's a, it's, it's without a doubt a, a boom for the for the for the house builders and the developers, but I'm not sure, you know, and obviously for good for the first-time buyers to the extent that they're not getting faced with increased prices, but I'm not, I think it's more of a sort of, you know, what's what's been interesting on the commentary is there's a sort of feeling of, you know, helping, all it's doing is propping up the housing market as being a key driver of economic prosperity in the UK. And is that necessarily, the, you know, the best thing? I do a lot of property work, so obviously I'm pleased with it, but um, it's just one of those sort of situations you just think, actually, is this, you know, is, are we gearing up for a crash in the future, potentially, or something I think businesses are very mindful of? Oh, no, UK property never crashes. Never. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was, I'm very friendly with an Argentinian chap who's uh, very high up in Santander, in, in one of the um, investment arms of Santander, and he earns a very, you know, he earns a lot of money, and he uh, wanted to buy a house last year, and I think it was like you know, 1.8 million, 2.2 million, something like that in, I want to say, Tufnell Park or Finsbury Park or Camden, somewhere up there, you know, but it was just basically a typical North London family house in the sort of 1.5 to 2 million bracket, which sounds like a lot, but for a house in North London, it just isn't. It's just what they cost. And I mean, his eyes were bleeding at the stamp duty he had to pay on it. I think it was 50 or 75 grand. And he was just like, that's 50 or 70 grand. It's not borrowed money, it's cash, just straight to the government. And to to someone who isn't normalised to it, he just felt that was an extraordinary amount of money to have to pay. Well, he's perfectly right. And I think it's a great distortion of the market because it's just, and it's caused a lot of problems. There's been a bit of a release rate lately, but that's probably because interest rates are so low. People can borrow more, but it's, it's a very unhealthy tax to tax people that heavily because a lot of people just couldn't afford to move. You know, they couldn't afford to face the stamp duty to move house. Um, it's a huge tax. You know, when you start seeing people paying out, you know, £100,000 in stamp duty to move home, it's crazy. And people say, well, they can afford it. Well, what they do is then go and borrow more. You know, it's, it's a, not a nice situation to be. I, th- I think it's been a bad tax. It's far too high. But, you know, it was a nice one for the previous chancellors to get his hands into. He loved it. And it's a sort of tax that, you know, they don't really recognise the damage it does to lower-income people. You know, £125,000 doesn't buy you half a flat in Slough, so you've got young people having to find that extra lump of stamp duty. You know, it can be the killer in their ability to buy a house. I think it's an appalling tax. 
Yeah, well, you're not alone. And uh, when whenever tax reformers are talking about reforming the taxes, and that's always high up on their list of taxes they would want to abolish. Okay, so our final subject before we just go on to discuss the matter of how all this gets paid for is SEISS, and that is your area of expertise, Jeremy. Thank you. SEISS is the self-employed income support scheme, as in essentially the government has released details of the fourth and fifth grants. And this is very, very helpful for the self-employed individuals, as they specifically what the new rules mean is that people who did not qualify for the first three grants may actually be eligible for grants now because the basis on which the grants are being awarded now takes into account the tax return for the year ended 5th April 2020. And essentially to the extent that you had submitted a return by I believe the 2nd of March, then that will be taken into account. This means according to Rishi, possibly 600,000 more individuals might be eligible for the grant. The truth of the matter is, even though they may have submitted a tax return, they also need to satisfy the criteria. I'm not going to go into the criteria right now, but what I'm just trying to raise is that because you submitted a tax return, it does not necessarily mean that you will actually qualify for the grant. You know, but we can't um, argue with the fact that the scheme has helped very, very many people to the extent it has helped many people. It is a good thing. And the, the fact that there is a fifth grant as well is also another good thing. One of the funny rules about the SEISS when it was actually implemented or introduced was because they didn't expect it to go longer than a year. They made rules to say that any grant that you receive will be taxed in the one year. Nobody anticipated that we'd be doing the pandemic another year later. Essentially, what they've now actually clarified in the budget is that you'll be taxable on your grant, but the tax will be due in the year of receipt, which is just logical, really, at the end of the day. But the long and short of it is the SEISS is a good thing. And along with all the other support measures, I think the government has to be commended in like, you know, actually starting to do things really, really quickly once the pandemic hit. So that is one thing I, however you look at it, if you didn't qualify, it's unfortunate, but at least they did try. Okay. Right, folks, let us now turn our attention to the bond market, the guilt market, government debt, how this all gets paid for. Who wants to kick us off on on this subject? Ian, why don't you... I'm quite happy to talk, I saw you leaning forward menacingly. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I mean, I think it's interesting. I mean, we're, there's just obviously there's a lot of talk about we've got to pay for the pandemic, and there's a big tax burden. And indeed, you know, without a doubt, there will, you know, there will be to a degree. And I think what Rishi's done in this budget today, you know, subject to what he may say in the autumn and on the 23rd of March, is that you know the co- companies, corporations are going to be paying the bulk of that tax hike. I think that's what you know. I think Richard's right. What he was saying earlier that we've got to try and limit the tax rises on the individuals because that's you know that's not good for the economy and for for, for everyone sort of going forward. So companies seem to be paying the bulk. But actually what I think is going to happen, I think there's obviously a lot of commentary around this, is that, you know, the bondholders, particularly sort of people who've got 10-year gilts, um, you know, are going to be paying for a lot of the cost of the pandemic. You know, the government's still borrowing at 
naught. I think it's just gone up this week to 0.77%. You know, I think it's the interest rate government, you know, 10-year government debt for the UK. Um, you know, and, it, and inflation is, you know, there's talk of inflationary pressures, you know, across all the financial press now, across, you know, a lot of things that people are starting to think there's more of a, you know, inflation risk upside that it's much more finely balanced. Everyone's been very negative about it. Sort of, you know, well, there's deflation, if anything, but I think the inflation is rearing its head to a degree. So obviously if you've if you've lent money to the government at 0.77% and when you get it back in 10 years' time, you know, you've lost out on 2.534% of inflation costs. You know, that's that's a big big loss in value. And I'm sure the government is relying on that. And a lot of governments worldwide, certainly the ones I think the Germans the Germans are still in negative interest rates for their bond. You have to pay money to the German government to lend them money. <laughs> I've got to say, I cannot understand why anyone would lend the government money at 0.77%. You know, even if nominal inflation is 2%, we've just talked about the housing market. You know, house prices go up at what, 8, 10%, something like that. Why would you lend money? You know, really, it's just, it's just but the, the reality is, is that pension funds are obliged to buy government bonds. And so it's a bit of a racket when you look at it like that. Could that change? Is it, what's the oblig- who's, why is it an obligation? No, no, there, there are lots of institutions have to have liquidity and safe money. And the argument is if you've got it with the government, it, it, or the decent governments of the world, then it's safe. And therefore you've got a cash uh, draw at any time. In other words, if you get a run on the insurance company, it knows it has the money to meet the, the run, effectively. But it is bad news. I mean, I, I think it's a terrible game that's got to be played, and who knows where it'll end, in the sense that if he, he's got to keep us under control so that outsiders look at the UK and say, what a good steady government. Otherwise, his interest rates will rock it upwards. The problem is... If other countries really get it right and and somebody says, well, I'd prefer to put my money in the US, then, you know, they'll put it there and we'll be having to bid for it. And and if he lets interest rates go up, hey, it'll cripple the economy because of the, you know, as he says, 25 billion or something per one point, uh, one percentage point. Um, and I think if he lets it go, can you imagine what will happen to the housing market if interest rates start to even creep up to what they were in the 60s? And they were relatively low in the 60s. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if interest rates even go back to where they were in the noughties, the housing market's in trouble. But yeah, I mean, but I will say this. I mean, we're probably, as an economy, too geared to high house prices. Um, and we're too vulnerable there. That's our sort of Achilles heel. But every country in the world is in the same position they can't put up interest rates or they can't let interest rates go up well that, that's the interesting question isn't it they can't let them go up but will they have to use mechanisms which will dig an even bigger hole to try and stop it going up too quickly because you can't have social revolution if we went back to the uh, method you know the 17 18 percent 15 percent base rate and rising you know, there would be complete social revolution. There would be. And, um, you know, we're in danger of sort of getting too political here. But but it's important to, I think, to be thinking in these terms is that, you know, they can't put up in, they just can't, or sorry, they can't allow them to go up. And once you understand that, then you can sort of base your business practices accordingly. Now, one man we haven't heard from uh, in a while is Simon Walsh, our, our in-house solicitor. Simon, we're coming to the end of the show now, but do you have any more thoughts on anything we've discussed? 
I, th- I think one thing that I am looking at very interest uh, with great interest is, you know, the the amount of money that people have saved, you know, in uh, in lockdown, and you know what w- what in reality is going to happen. You know, I think there were some statistics in the Economist this morning that you know, apparently in the UK we've saved almost five point five percent of GDP. So, so the question is, are we all going to just go crazy and spend it, which is good for the economy, or is there an element of sort of, you know, will people sort of hold back because they're concerned about, you know, what the next two to five years looks like? So, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I, I expect we will see a bounce back uh, sometime next year or into 2023. But my, my question is, you know, how, how long you know, is that sustainable for? You're very good at saving the money while you're not out getting pissed. But once a few pints go down, you suddenly think, you know what, sod it. I will have the lobster thermidor and another 12 bottles of wine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 just harder to spend when you can't go out. Um, gents, it's been really interesting hearing all your thoughts. And um, thank you very much for joining us on the show. My thanks go to Andrew Ory, to Richard Ory, to Simon Walsh, to Jeremy Coker, and to Ian Phipps. My thanks go also to our producer, Darminda Danjal. Thank you very much for listening, folks. We'll be back with another Business Without very soon. In the meantime, goodbye. <laughs>